The New Testament assures us that persecution is a part of the Christian life. In fact, if you read the New Testament from beginning to end, it becomes very clear, both implicitly and explicitly, that persecution is normative, that it should be expected of believers in this day. You might be aware of verses like 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, verses that say things like this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution, if you were to type in uh, persecution like on your Google search bar, uh, the first one that I had pop up as a definition is this. This is the definition of persecution. Hostility and ill treatment, especially because of race or political or religious beliefs. I think that's a pretty good working definition. Hostility and ill treatment for a Christian faith. Now, regarding persecution, there is a spectrum of intensity, and you all know that this is the case. Some Christians are really quick to cry persecution, and others are very slow to cry persecution. I'm not sure which one you might be. The, 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 kind of the situation might determine which you uh, might fall into, but uh, some might lose a job and go, it's because I'm a Christian. No, maybe it's because you're lazy. Maybe that's why you got fired from that job. It had nothing to do with your faith. It had everything to do with the fact that you came in late and were on your cell phone the whole time. Maybe that's why. Other people might endure some genuine persecution, struggling, suffering, hostility because of the Christian faith, distinctly. In other words, if you weren't Christian, you wouldn't be suffering in that way, but because you are Christian, you are suffering in that way, but you don't yet feel, you haven't shed blood, and so you go, well, I'm not like the people over in China or, or, or North Korea who might have laid their lives down, so I, I don't want to use the word persecution. See what I mean? Some are, some are quick to say it and some are slow to say it, but it is right to say that a whole spectrum of suffering that might befall believers for being believers could rightly be called persecution. Now, I have just personally, as a Christian and as a pastor, I have some concerns regarding the way that Christians think about persecution. And I just want to lay those out for you right at the beginning of this final sermon in our Ecclesia series. My first concern regarding the way Christians think about persecution is that American Christians here, my primary audience, will not take the New Testament guarantees of persecution seriously. But you'll be blindsided when it comes. We'll see that like, well, that's not, that's not us. We're, we're never going to have to deal with that. My kids are never going to have to deal with that. My grandkids are never going to have to deal with that. My first concern is that we won't take these warnings, maybe promises even, seriously. My second concern is that we will not be ready for it when it comes. Now, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will show up and give you the words that you need to say. He tells this to his disciples before they, they have persecution. And they're trying to think, like, what am I going to do if I stand before uh, kings and magistrates and, and people who are trying to uh, try me in the court of law for preaching the gospel? What should I do? Jesus says, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will give you words when you get there. But I'm talking about the kind of readiness that is just the expectation of it coming. That we will not be ready. That we will become complacent. So when it comes, it'll be surprising. What? What? Third, I am very concerned, very concerned that American Christians will react to genuine persecution with a sense of indignation or entitlement. 
How dare you persecute me? How dare you tell me I can't do something because I'm a Christian? Kind of the tantrum response. Very concerned about that. Fourth, I'm concerned that when and if persecution does come, we might miss opportunities to leverage or even exploit that persecution for God's glory and for gospel witness. I don't want to be the kind of pastor that when persecution does come, the congregation that I serve is blindsided by, what do we do now? I want you to be ready so that when and if the day comes that you have to deal with it, you'll say, this is what I've been trained for. Okay, that's the thing. No, I do not, I do not believe that we are yet experiencing widespread persecution as a Christian church in America. I don't think that that's the case yet. You know, I'm saying this in light of mask requirements, COVID stuff, restrictions on meeting. I'm aware of this. I don't think, by and large, those things qualify quite as pointed, unique, distinct, calling out Christian worship kind of persecution. Yes, I am aware that some churches have been unfairly targeted regarding COVID restrictions. Yes, I am aware, and I do think that there have been some instances of no question persecution against Christians. I do think that has happened. And no, I don't think that that kind of targeting is as intense as persecution in other parts of the world where blood is shed. But as Christians... We must be prepared to face hostility at various levels of intensity at any time and in any place as believers. And I think it is coming soon. And that's not alarmism. When I say I think it's coming soon, it's not because I'm reading a newspaper. Although when you read the newspaper, you you might be inclined to think that it is coming sooner. But even, even the New Testament uses language regarding the second coming of Jesus that it's coming soon. Right? Thousands of years later, it's very soon, nearer now than, than when we first began. So I feel confident saying persecution is coming soon. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe in the lifetime of our children, persecution should certainly be expected. I don't want to get to heaven. Well, I'm, I, think, I think we probably will get to heaven and be surrounded by other believers. And, and a conversation like this could go on. Whoa, you're, you're one of those? You're Barnabas, Chan, get over here. They're one of those. What was it like being, being the, that part of the Christian church in history that wasn't persecuted? What did you do with that freedom? We're the oddballs in Christian history. For the kind of day in the sunshine that we've had, where social benefit was accrued to those who claimed the name of Christ. It's very odd. Here's where I'm going today. My goal today is to try to help you think rightly about persecution. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give four things that I hope that we as a church begin thinking together, collectively around, regarding persecution. I'm just going to give four bullet points at the end of this sermon. But the way I'm going to get there is we're going to continue on in our story in the book of Acts. In the past couple of weeks, we've gone through chapter 2, where we saw Peter preach the first Christian sermon, how he preached that, the effect that it had, and that 3,000 people got saved, baptized that very day. The church was born. The life of the church was amazing. We saw that beautiful passage last week that talked about just how awesome it was to be amongst believers in full community, 
bound together by the apostles' teaching, by the gospel, the kind of things that we aspire to see happen in the Christian church today. But that peace did not last for long. Just one chapter later, the Pentecost aftermath looks like this. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 today. Excuse me, chapter 4 and chapter 5. I'm actually going to go through all of chapter 4 at a very, very brisk rate, okay? And just parts of chapter 5. I want you to see a few things regarding the first instances of Christian persecution, how rapidly it developed, and what we can learn from it. We're going to begin in chapter 4, verse 1. But let, let me quickly summarize chapter 3 for you so we get up to where we are here. In chapter 3, Peter heals a man born paralyzed. 42-year-old guy, never walked before in his life, picks him right up off the street in the name of Jesus. He's brought before the ruling class of the Jews, the Sadducees, the high priest, where he gives his second public sermon, a sermon in front of a whole bunch of people, about Jesus. And he just proclaims the gospel. You killed the author of life. He commands them to repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And this is what happens as a result of, of the, the response to his preaching before these leaders at that time. If you have your Bibles, go to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I'm not putting slides up today. You can follow along or just listen. Okay. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the, the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Peter and John were preaching. They were speaking to the people, probably street preacher style all throughout this time, and they know this preaching is going down. The priests were annoyed. Now it tells us that these were the Sadducees. They were annoyed at the preaching, probably most specifically the fact that they were preaching that Jesus raised from the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection at all, and so they were the ones who were the liberal sect of the Jews in the day. They were the ones who would kind of, the Pharisees were kind of the conservative sect of the Jews who looked in the Old Testament scriptures and mined over every passage and word. The Sadducees were kind of the, you might call them the liberal sect. They kind of rejected angels and demons and things that happen after you die. And it's kind of threw all that into a ball of supernaturalism that they didn't hold to. They're annoyed. Going on to three and four. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So we see the very first response to this preaching of the gospel being that these authorities try to silence the message of the gospel from being proclaimed in the public square. And that's been happening since the very first days of Christianity. We should expect that it would continue into ours, that those who were in authority would try to silence the message of the gospel. They're, they're annoyed, at the very least, they're annoyed by it. The world hates our message. It always has. We just need to get used to the fact that the gospel is abhorred by the non-believing world. Now, the courts were closed for that day, so they, they put these guys in a holding cell until the following morning. Well, they'll bring them back out. But the damage had already been done. 2,000 more people believe in Jesus. But remember that the, the count that was given, I said, back in Acts chapter 2, was at 3,000, were added to the number. Now 2,000 more, so that it brings it to a total of 5,000 men. House, heads of households, probably what's in mind there. I just want to make a quick note of this, because this is going to set the stage of what we're going to see the rest of the book of Acts. It's helpful to notice this. This 2,000-person increase would have been a dramatic 
decrease in the rate of growth. Right? The previous event, big. This one, 30% lower. Just want you to bear this in mind. Although the Christian church exploded onto the scene, that rate of growth would not continue. These events were incredibly unique in the start of the Christian church and unique periods now in history and time where God is doing something big in a particular region. We might see a kind of revival. People might call it that way. But they, are ne- they, they were not then and never have been, never will be normative. The plan for kingdom growth is primarily through the long, arduous, slow grind of one-on-one gospel sharing. We are not impressed as Christians by big flash-in-the-pan events that don't produce lasting fruit. There's a lot of, uh, lot, lot of talk these days about Christian churches trying to, to make things work out in such a way that we have giant, big flash-in-the-pan events with thousands of people coming, and you do the next one, and only a few, few came to that one. You're like, well, what did we do wrong? Guys, even the beginning of the Christian church worked that way. Big something happens, the next event, quite a bit less. And it wasn't because it was breaking. It was doing exactly what it was intended to do. Continuing on to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Peter, of course, is the spokesperson here, as he oftentimes is. And it was Peter who would later write this in 1 Peter 3.15, that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And Peter's ready. He's about to give them a reason. They're asking him a question, and he's about to proclaim the answer. Now, I want you to see this. The assembling, ruling Jewish leaders here who convened to try these men in this court, they knew that something remarkable had happened. I want you to notice They did not ask, how did you perform that illusion as though they were a band of street magicians or something. They knew something supernatural took place. That guy never walked, now he walks. This miracle was was unmistakably that. It was a miracle. By what power? You, You did something powerful and amazing. How did you accomplish this feat? By what name? Peter answers in verse 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What's Peter's answer? Whose name? In whose name have you healed this man? Answer, Jesus, the one you killed. And his is the only name that exists that has the power to save. Peter and John are standing there together, and while it's Peter speaking, John will later go on to write one of the gospel accounts. 
John, in his, at the, towards the conclusion of his gospel, writes this in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written, talking about the stories of what Jesus had accomplished, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These guys don't waste the opportunity to preach. It is only in the name of Jesus. Not just one of the names that can heal, only Jesus. Verse 13 and 14. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Here's these guys. It's pretty evident that they don't have an education. You know, they're just common men. You ever wonder how they perceived that? They knew it somehow. They'd seen them with Jesus. They had some reference point for that. They didn't recognize them amongst the academic circles. But these guys didn't need an education. They had the spirit of the living God. And on top of that, they had boldness. Boldness. That's needed right now in our day. Boldness in the proclamation of truth. You know, I've asked people before, what would, what would prohibit you from evangelizing? Why would you not share the gospel with a neighbor, a friend, a family member, or on the street? Oftentimes, we invite people to come out to the street. Groups come in from out of town. Come with us downtown. Let's talk to people on the street about the gospel. People get nervous and scared. You know this. You might get apprehensive yourself if someone asked you to come do that. One of the most common objections or the common hurdles, the reasons that people have why they might not do that is because I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to, right? Might be feeling that yourself. These guys were uneducated. They had the Spirit of God in them, which is infinitely more important. They had the Spirit of God than any degrees. You're a Christian. You already have all that you need to share the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit of God. What more is there? Why do you think God chose uneducated men? This is, this is so cool. This isn't just like a, a, you know, the angel runs in, hey, God, just want to remind you, they're, they're uneducated. Oh, well, we'll just leave them. They'll figure it out. No. Listen, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. Paul says this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God operates this way. He humbles mankind. He mocks the folly, the, the, the pride, the arrogance of people in the world. <laughs> but seeing the man who was healed standing beside him, they had nothing to say in opposition. Apparently, healing can, can happen apart from education and degrees. The authenticating power of God showed that they were working for him. God does this at key points in Christian history. He doesn't always do it. At key points in Christian history, he does this. He shows up with mighty miracles and people go, you can't be true, but look what happened. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. 
But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. These, these religious leaders cannot deny that the miracle had already taken place. It, it had spread too quickly. But I want you to think for a moment just how wicked these guys are. How wicked. They want to silence them. They don't even want to see people healed. They would rather that suffering continues in Jerusalem so that the name of Jesus will not be spread. Let them suffer so that Jesus doesn't spread. I want you to quickly just flash forward, apply this to our day for a quick moment here with me. If you are waiting for people in our community to see the merits of Christian churches, that they will start valuing Christian living, don't hold your breath. Because even if all of a sudden the merits of Christian life and the gospel are seen in a pragmatic sense by our community that does not produce the legislation to then let them go. Well, we don't believe in this Jesus guy. They're probably teaching false things, but at least they'll heal people. It's not the way it works. The gospel that we preach is a gospel in Jesus' name. It's not just for healing. It's not just for social good. It's not just for community benefit. It's not just for your best life now. You don't get all the good that comes with Christianity without Christ. You get eanity. And you can attach anything to the beginning of that. It continues on in verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you Rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. These guys charge them to stop preaching the gospel. And they think that this charge is going to stop it. We laugh at that. What do they appeal to? They appeal to their authority because we said so. You stop healing people. You stop preaching in the name of Jesus because we said so. Do you not know who we are? They made a demand, and these Christians did not skip a beat. Nope. Stop preaching. Nope. This is interesting. It could, it could be said that you might be able to apply uh, various ways in history where people have just been cunning and been like, okay, we will not preach in the name of Jesus. We will teach boldly in the streets. You know, find some ways to try to get around the little legal loopholes. They're just like, nope. You You judge. You judge if we should obey you or God. Now, they would say this to these guys because they say that they're operating on behalf of God. I don't think that they would say this again to, to the godless authorities because they know the godless authorities don't worship their God, but these guys claim to. Go check with your God. See if, see if we should obey you or him. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We're witnesses, and you can't stop that. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. They know this guy's an adult. They know that he's been there for long enough that every person in Jerusalem knows who this guy is. They, they, oh, the, oh, that guy. He's what, what? He's walking? Praising God for what had happened. They have no way to punish them. So what do they do? They threaten Peter and James. They threaten them. Peter, Peter and John, excuse me. They threaten them. 
One act of Christian persecution is threats. Not genuine persecution. No, it's not the same as bloodletting, but it, it's, it's persecution. And that's where it starts. One act of Christian persecution, as it begins here, is threats. Now, for sake of time, I'm, I'm going to kind of roll quickly through a couple passages. I want to get you to where I want you to, to see here today. But please take this as a commission. Today, tomorrow, sometime this week, read through the rest of chapter 4. Read through the beginning of chapter 5 more thoroughly for yourself to, to, to fill in the blanks here. But let me just go through it quickly right now. What happens next is that these Peter and John, they go back to the church and they pray for greater boldness. He refused to stop preaching the word. They're going to keep doing it. And the Holy Spirit gives them greater boldness. They already have boldness, and they pray for more of it. They get more. He who has, more will be granted to him, right? That kind of thing. They have everything in common. There's another beautiful passage at the end of chapter 4 here. It tells about the church, just, just how awesome it is being part of the church. Then chapter 5 comes, and sin enters into the church. Some greed, some desire to be seen as better than they are. Ananias and Sapphira's account takes place. God brings judgment on the people who are lying to the church in order to puff themselves up. That ain't happening in the Christian church. That's what he says. Many signs and wonders are performed at the hands of these apostles. People are, people are being healed throughout the city in miraculous ways, in ways that are so clearly authenticating, no one could say that it's not of God. And what happens next is that the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem because people outside of Jerusalem begin bringing people to Jerusalem to get healed that they go back out and start telling what happens. You see, the circle starts spreading, the ripples in the pond, just like Jesus said at the beginning of the book. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It started. It's starting. This bushfire has gotten bigger. Community spread. Things heat up. And this is when, because things start getting out of hand, that the ruling Jews say, time to squash this. And that's what they step in. Chapter 5, starting in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. It's hard to not just quickly see that word jealousy. It wasn't, it wasn't a heartfelt concern that they were going to hear, hear things about a false religion that, that's coming to their, their, their region. Oh, the, by Yahweh's name, we want to stop this, this false teaching. No, it was jealousy. They wanted power. All of a sudden, people were going for religious truth to others other than them, and they wanted it, and it was wicked. There is no ignorance taking place here. They know exactly what they're doing. They want power. They want authority. They can't deny or reject the miracles that are taking place. And out of jealousy, they operate in persecution. So they take these guys, put them in prison. That's the next act of persecution. Starts with threats, moves quickly to prison. We gotta shut these guys down. We gotta restrict and limit somehow. Now, for the sake of time, what happens next is an angel breaks them out of prison. And what do they do? Oh, goodness. They immediately go back to the streets and they preach. And the Jews, they go looking for them. Bring the prisoners. They're not in there. Where are they? They're, they're preaching again. Go get them. 
And they arrest him. They're afraid of the crowds. They're like, just please come, please come, please come. Bring him before him. Peter preaches again. He tells them, we must obey God rather than men. He says, I already made this clear. We said we're going to preach. We're going to do it. Jump into verse 33. When they heard this, this is the, the ruling leaders, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They were enraged. Super angry. It always goes this way. Those who hate the gospel always end up losing their cool. Just a sh- it ends up in shrieking. The grinding of teeth, the beating of the breast, the... Rah! Gamaliel steps in. Gamaliel was a, pro- a Pharisee. Gamaliel steps in and he convinces them to cool off. And he tries to tell them to just wait it out. Just wait it out. Run out the clock. These guys are true. God will let them succeed. If these guys are not true, time will tell. And it will heal this for us. Now, quick something for those of you who just love the study of the Bible. Very interesting. The Pharisees in the gospel accounts were Jesus' number one enemy. They were the ones he went after more than anybody. The woes in Matthew 23 were to the the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who were the brunt of Jesus' constant attention. They were, the, they were the conservative group of these Jews as opposed to the Sadducees who were the liberal view of these Jews. Here's what's interesting, though. In the book of Acts, the Pharisees are the good guys. For the rest of the, of the book of Acts, whenever a Pharisee shows up, they're on the side of the Christians. In fact, it'll go on to say that many Pharisees get saved. Very interesting. Gamaliel steps in and goes, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. If God is in this, it'll succeed. And we do not want to be against God. That's what the Pharisees thought. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Finally, we have physical persecution. So it went from threats to prison to beatings, and they let them go. Ha! That was their mistake. Let them go. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you that this physical persecution will culminate in capital punishment, death, mob killing, at the end of the very next chapter. End of chapter 6, these guys are enraged. Chapter 7, bam, they kill Stephen the first Christian martyr post-Pentecost that we know of. In verse 41 and 42 summarize what happened at the end of this interaction. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching but the Christ is Jesus. Please, please read, read chapters 3 through 5 this week and see the flow. See, see what happened here. I jumped quickly. I want to wrap up our time today, uh, maybe the next 10 minutes, and I want to do four points for you. Ways that I think would be helpful for you and for me together to think about persecution, okay? First is this. Persecution is expected for the believer. It is not a strange thing 
for a Christian to be persecuted. 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This isn't strange. We've been telling you about this, and almost every book of the New Testament tells us it's coming. We've been telling you over and over and over and over and over. It's coming. It's right here. It's on top of you. Be ready for it. If you don't receive persecution, you're the exception, not the rule as a Christian. And because persecution should be so expected, brothers and sisters, American brothers and sisters, let us not be entitled. We do not respond to persecution with tantrums, but with dignity. If we were to preach the gospel on the streets and police were coming to arrest, we are not the ones who kick the cops and fight them. And no, you, you may not stop me from doing it. You go. In chains. Oh, goodness, that our response might be like Peter and the apostles, rejoicing. Aaron and I, a long time ago, made a pact about potential persecution on the street with evangelism. That if somebody got enraged enough that they started beating one of us, the, the pact was, you, you let them beat me for a while before you step in. Don't you rob me of that joy! We're serious. Have we all, we've had it. When they start kicking the head, maybe two or three, and you, you can stop it then. But, but up until then, you let me. You let me fall. My wife might not appreciate that as much. <laughs> oh, the joy. It's expected for the believer. Brothers and sisters, don't... We do not play this game as, how, how dare you persecute us? You, you may not persecute. Yes, they will. Your Lord said this. It will come. Someday, you want to teach our children to be ready. It's expected. Second, persecution escalates. Okay? Uh, you need to know this because there's, that, there's that, that spectrum. So we can be too quick to say it, too slow to say it. Persecution is a spectrum. Remember, the spe remember what happened right here. Threats. Imprisonment. Restrictions and limitations. In this case, in jail. What happened next? Beatings. What happened after that? Death. That's the flow. It moves from one to the next. And it usually moves... Quite quickly. I think that right now in Christian history, in America, we're on the threats phase of persecution. There are lots of threats towards Christians, towards our churches, towards the way that Christians live or what we teach. I think that we're in the threats phase. I think that that's what's taking place. I think many believers are starting to sniff that out and go, these... The guns are all being trained on believers. I think that's the case. I could be wrong, but I think that's what's going down. I don't know if it ever goes from one to the next and then retreats. It seems as though 
It goes from one to the next, and it always escalates until there's something major that happens on the world stage that turns it back to a restart. Or just, or just a reset, and it'll eventually flow that same direction until Jesus returns. You know, the book of Revelation gives us a list of, of, of people who are in heaven, and they're, they're praising and worshiping God. And we, we see one list uh, that refers to, in Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs, those who have been beheaded for the name of Jesus. And they are, they are beneath the throne of God, and they're crying out to him, How much longer? How much longer must we wait, O oh God, until you finish this thing? And do you remember what God said to the martyrs? He says, You must wait a little longer until all of those who are to be killed for the name have been killed. In other words, all the way up until the point at which Jesus comes, there will be martyrs. All the way to that point. Somebody will be the last Christian martyr. Wait, 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 done. Boom, Jesus. It's going to happen. Somebody will die at the last. There's no future for us that we look forward to outside of eternity, prior to eternity, where Christians are not going to be killed. Killed. It escalates. Persecution is expected for the believer. Persecution escalates. You need to be ready for that. Third, this one makes me weep. Persecution makes us more like Jesus. Did you know that the Christian mission is global domination? And we expect the shedding of blood in that war, but it will be ours. We're not the revolutionaries, we're the martyrs. We don't kill for our gospel, we die for it. Like our Christ. You're never more like Jesus than when you're being beaten and reviled while remaining innocent. Matthew 10, 24 through 25, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, that's, a, that's like Satan. If they've, if they've reviled the master, how much more will they malign those of his household? It's a sanctifying experience to be made like our master. We want to be like Jesus. Do you not pray that? Lord, make me more like you. We read texts of scripture that are like a voice in our ears that say to us, are you, are you really want to be like me? It's a sanctifying experience. Jesus says in John 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Disciples, don't forget this. Tune in, asterisk, underline, bold, highlight this. Remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. It reminds us that we are not of this world. Persecution reminds us we are not citizens of this world. 
but of another one. Persecution is expected. Persecution escalates. It makes us more like Jesus. And finally, persecution always backfires on the oppressor. We hate that you glorify God, and the whip goes, God gets glory. It benefits us. Guys, no, no fleshly, materialistic mind can make sense of this. But by the Spirit of God inspiring the, the writing of the New Testament, telling us over and over again, it is a joy. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. That testing, that persecution, that fire is for your good. For the good of the church. Think about how maddening that must be to our oppressors. You kill one Christian leader, ten more. Ten more rise up and share the gospel. What happens after the first Christian martyr, Stephen, is stoned to death by a mob? Remember that event? Do you remember just, just, a, just a month, month and a half earlier? These, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these ruling leaders of the Jews, and even the, the, the crowds are saying, well, we can't legally kill Jesus. And then they march Stephen out to illegally kill him because they're so enraged, they have to kill him. They, they, they can't not throw stones at his head until he's dead. And they applaud it. And it, it whips them up into such a frenzy that they go house to house searching for Christians to kill. They got a taste of blood like chum in the water and like sharks. Jesus promised our victory. The New Testament tells us how the victory will come by the Great Commission. Power of the Holy Spirit, working through believers who will go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. That's how it's going to work. We don't have a plan B. We don't change to something new. We do what God has always told us to do. And no matter what happens, even when persecution comes, it's to our benefit and to the benefit of the world. God is good. He will win the day. The church will be built. Persecution is expected. Be ready for it, brothers and sisters. It escalates. When you see one sign, be ready for the next. Persecution makes us more like Jesus. Prepare your heart and your mind to not be entitled, but to embrace and rejoice what makes you look more like your Lord. A billion years of joy for a lifetime of blood. And it will backfire. Don't for a moment think that it's the loss of the Christian church when persecution comes. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You have provided a way to victory through your son. He has vanquished our enemy. He cannot touch us. The devil himself will flee like a frightened bunny rabbit when we resist him because of your power. Father, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let us fear you, not man. What can they do? All they can do is kill us. That's all they can do is send us home to you. Lord, let us remember this. Father, wake up me. Wake up American Christians to see this. Prepare our hearts for those days that we will not see it as something odd, as something strange. Prepare us, Lord, 
for whatever's coming ahead, whether it be tomorrow or 10 or 100 years from now. Let us love you so much that we see Jesus and faithfulness to him is better than life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.